uh, Gary and Don like to share, and uh, they had a bunch of kids with them at Thanksgiving, which got Don sick, and then Don decided to share that with Gary last night. So uh, I am pinch hitting. My name is Wes Crago. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Point, and uh, this is a very intimidating place to stand without a lot of time to prepare. So I pray that you would be gracious this morning, and that, again, any of my failings, uh, you would you know, blame on Gary or whatever, but uh, the, the Holy Spirit would uh, come through this morning is what we're going to talk about. I thought in my mind, since sort of it was Don's illness to Gary, that the natural thing to happen would Don would simply come up here and preach, kind of a symmetry, and uh, there was a, a short but heated debate on that that turns out was largely irrelevant. So here I am, and... Uh, you know, we'll, I think we'll be fine. It's a good church. It's a good morning. It's a, it's a good time to be together uh, during this season of Advent with Christmas coming. I wanted to give uh, kind of a, a Christmassy message in the sense that, well, everything about Christ is Christmassy, but I uh, also want to do something that kind of dovetails a little bit with Gary's study of Ephesians. I mean, Gary's taking us through Ephesians this season, and Ephesians is about the church. Uh, it's the high point of everything we know about the church. And so to talk a little bit about the church this morning and come at it with uh, maybe a little bit different technique, and all I want to do is give you a short, kind of think of this as a devotional, but really it's an encouragement. If you're involved in ministry, I want to encourage you. And if you're not involved in ministry and you're coming to this church, I really want to encourage you to get involved because um, there's so much that you miss if you're not highly involved in your church. And it's not a do things to get points, and it's not a do things to for your salvation, certainly, because we'll, we'll address that as we go, but it's, there's so much joy that is available to you uh, to get engaged with other people. And that's kind of, I think, part of the message of the Christmas season is certainly the message of Ephesians, of what it means to be a church and um, to be engaged. So a message about sanctification, which we'll talk about, a message about the church and being engaged, and a little bit about skiing. See, I worked that in there real subtly. That's a real clever thing. So when you get a call, uh, when somebody says, hey, I need you to preach tomorrow morning, and it's you know, late in the evening, uh, you, you kind of run to what you know. And what I knew was something we'd been talking about with the elders this week, and that was the passage that Russ read this morning out of 1 Timothy, which the most important word in that was discipline. And my wife, our family, we ski. That's a snow ski, the downhill kind, not the kind where you have to work real hard, the kind where the, the chair takes you up and then you just come down fast. And it combines these great things skiing does because there's snow, which I love. There's speed, which is the most addictive thing in the world. And then there's a, just a little bit of kind of competition slash you have to be kind of aware of what's going on and plan, and yet you also have to be very reactive to be successful at skiing. You can't just go as fast as you can down the hill. That's easy to do. But an average skier, if you're not paying attention, you easily can exceed 70 miles an hour on skis. It's, it's not hard. You just Gravity does everything for you. Um, the problem is turning and stopping because at 70 miles an hour, the trees are very, very hard. You can, you can become a, a dark stain uh, for as a warning to other skiers. And so you have to kind of be, you have to have your mind turned on. You can't just go straight adrenaline. You have to kind of plan your route a little bit. You have to be aggressive. Otherwise, it's no fun. But you have to be under control. 
And that brings up that just that, that dichotomy of those two things to me is interesting. It makes me philosophical. So this is what's going through my head as I'm skiing yesterday is, wow, that's really interesting. What makes, what makes you able to do that? What, what helps you get better at that? Because when I first started skiing, I was in high school, and my buddies, you know, football guys, just go down the hill, point your skis down, and when you need to turn, fall. Okay, that's pretty simple. I can do that. And the, the, I don't recommend that, by the way, because it's, it's this thing that you can get out of control pretty seriously. But getting better at that takes something. And that's what I started thinking about. And I wanted to relate getting better at skiing with getting better in the church. Because we're here in this church. We're not called here just to be here. Jesus Christ saved you, me, all of us, for a purpose. And the purpose is not just to come on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is important. Sunday morning is beautiful. We can have sermon after sermon about this magical thing that takes place on a Sunday morning with all of us put together. But it's not the end-all, be-all. It's one of the things we do. And to get better at this takes something. And it's the same thing it takes to be better at skiing, to go from the guy that goes warp eight straight down and then tumbles in a ball of everything, has a yard sale of clothing and ski parts, to somebody who actually can stay on their feet. And that thing was discipline. That was the verse that Russ read out of 1 Timothy, discipline. And we did a little devotion on that at discipline. And if you do a word study in the Bible, discipline shows up a lot. It might be uh, semi-related words, but the word, the exact word discipline shows up 48 times. And it's in almost every book. And there's a lot of it in Proverbs, but there's also a lot of it in the epistles, the, the letters to churches about how to be better at being a church. And discipline shows up all the time. And if you generalize the definitions, and I don't want to get too in-depth with it, but there's really two definitions for discipline. There's the kind my daughter thinks of when I bring up discipline, and she rolls her eyes. And that discipline is the corrective kind. That's the discipline when Israel screwed up and the Lord disciplined Israel. It's the discipline that is punishment almost or corrective. It's the discipline like a traffic ticket, something to change your behavior so that you're more safe. But the second kind of discipline is the one that really is what infuses the whole New Testament, which we're a New Testament church. We should maybe pay really close attention to the New Testament definition of discipline, and that is coaching, experience, practice. It's exercise. In fact, the Greek word for discipline is gymnasia. And if you pronounce it incorrectly, you get gymnasiae, which sounds a lot like gymnasium, which is exactly where we get our word gymnasium from, means discipline. And so discipline is not a negative. Discipline is not a corrective thing. Discipline is something that's good for us, the way that doing push-ups and sit-ups and jogging is good for our body. There's a discipline for our spirit that is equally important, and it's just, I think, as important for you in the church and for me here in the church as it is on the ski hill, not to end up as a, a splat on the side of a tree. We want to be better today than we were yesterday as a church. We want to be better tomorrow than we are today. The theological term for that is called sanctification. 
and that's this term, then you'll hear me go from side to side as I always do. But when we're saved, there's really three parts to that. The first part is when we believe. We are justified is the theological term. We are saved from the penalty of sin. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, nothing else, just believe, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You will live with Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity, period. That's being justified. And then way over in the future sometime, which is always on this side of the church, is glorification, being glorified, where we will exist with Jesus And there will be no sense of sin. There will be no sin. There will be no sign of anything except for the marks on Christ to show us that there was sin. That's being glorified. But in between these two is where we generally struggle. And this is called sanctification. And what's important is it's not meant to be static. Justification, fixed point in time. Happened in the past. Glorification will be fixed point in the future. But in the middle, it changes every day. And we're called to get better. We're called to get closer to Jesus Christ. Kind of like trying to be a little better skier every time you get on the hill. So that's what I want to talk about is our daily walk in the church. And so everything I'm talking about today is this is all aimed at believers. This is all aimed at people who have already accepted Jesus Christ. So I will say nothing today when I talk about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. That has nothing to do with being saved. It will have nothing to do with being in heaven. It has everything to do with living our life today and trying to be more like Jesus Christ. Trying to be closer to him. Trying to be closer to one another in the church. That's to be sanctified. And it's supposed to be something we progress, we grow. And I want to encourage you in that today. In fact, we're going to do a little bit of that today. To do that, it requires discipline. Working out, exercising, coaching, that's discipline. And discipline is the opposite of tradition. And here's where it gets to be a problem for us in the church. We have a lot of traditions, right? And we use the tradition in the term of kind of loosely like, yeah, we like to have a, a Christmas Eve service and we, we observe the Advent calendar. We will observe the Lord's table today. Those can become traditional. And when I, when I say tradition, when I define tradition, I mean something you do without thinking. And I pray that we don't do that here. But it can happen pretty easily. We can get into a, a habit to where we do things in the church without thinking about it. And that is just as dangerous for you in the church and for me in the church as it would be for me to be on the ski hill going 60 miles an hour and not thinking, just reacting. Because you can get yourself in a world of hurt where you can't turn around. It's almost like being on a, a steep road on ice, and if you go a little bit too fast at the start, it's too late. You get past that point. We don't want to do that. We don't want to have our brains turned off in church. And so we don't want to be traditional in that sense of the word. We want to be disciplined. Charles Spurgeon is a phenomenal theologian and preacher. He said, everything, in a spiritual religion, everything must be understood. Maybe a way to put that a little differently. You have to have your brain turned on in church. You can't come here and sit and kind of, I'm in church. And walk out thinking, hey, I'm in church. I did a good job. I'm a, 
I'm a good Christian because I came to church today. That'd be like saying, I stood in my garage this morning, and I'm a car. Right? Just being here doesn't... You have to be here and think about what you're doing to have the joy, to have the excitement, to have the sense of getting a little bit better at what we do. Christianity demands that our brains are turned on, that we are disciplined, that we are intentional about trying to get better. It's a fundamental of the faith. And discipline is all about fundamentals. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You could be, well, think about it. In any sport, there's certain fundamental things you do to be disciplined. In golf, you have to work on a rattle of repetition, working on a perfection of a swing. In music, there's a lot of repetition. To be good at something, there's fundamentals that you repeat to be successful. If you're in art, you have fundamentals that you have to learn in order to be successful to do things. Any endeavor you do, you have fundamentals that you repeat to be good at that. And that is a discipline to follow these fundamentals and not have your brain turned off while you're doing it. Church, it's the same thing. Our faith has to be more than being here, just being here on a Sunday morning. Our faith has to be something that we're engaged in and we're a part of. One of the fundamentals of the faith is this, the Lord's Supper, communion. That's a fundamental of the faith. It's something we repeat. And the challenge is, as Gary likes to point out, it's too easy for this to become a ritual, for this to become a tradition, something we just do without thinking. And it's easy and it's even comforting to make it a tradition, but we can't. And so this morning, I want to try to remind us a little bit of making this a discipline, a fundamental that we're going to follow, that we're going to observe, and we're going to have our brains turned on and think about what we're doing because you can't have growth without following these fundamentals. You can't have growth without the discipline. And so to talk about the why of this and remind us all one more time about why we're here and what we're doing with this fundamental. So if you have your Bible, if you'd open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it should be pretty familiar area for there since about once a month we land in 1 Corinthians for a little while and talk about what was going on there. <clears throat> Some of this will be review for you, and that's good. The challenge is to make it fresh, to make it new, to engage your brain and think about it maybe in a way you haven't thought about it before. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I love the first line it starts with is, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That's a pretty bold statement by Paul. But let's talk about this chapter, what this is. This is our guidance for what we're doing here this morning. So a little context. Can't help myself. I apologize. Not really. This is good. Context is important. The author is Paul, the Apostle Paul. This was written um, in about 55 A.D., pretty close to that, actually. They can pin that down based on his other writings. Uh, He's writing it to the Christians, Christians, not to non-Christians, to the Christians in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a big city. Corinth was about the size of Portland, Oregon. It's a port city, lots of money, culturally, if you were to go to Corinth in about 55 AD, you would be reminded of Las Vegas. Lots of immorality, 
lots of pretty crazy behavior, lots of money, uh, lots of extreme behavior. In fact, the, the Corinthian church was more than a little influenced by the Las Vegasness of Corinth. And uh, in the ancient world, to Corinthicize was a euphemism for sexual immorality, to be very immoral sexually. They, were, they had a lot of slaves. They had a lot of money, and they, they acted on their base impulses, and this was affecting the church. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians was pretty harsh. He was not too happy with what was going on in the church, and he was taking them to task, and he was trying to remind them of a fundamental of the faith to bring them back to acting on their faith, to being seen as Christians and not misleading new believers. And I think that, that's, that resonates with me. Now, we might not have the same immorality issues that the Corinthian church did, but we're still in a city that is fundamentally and majority non-believers around us, right? The Christians in Grant County, you're about 30%, give or take, of the total population as believers. So the majority of our friends, majority of our neighbors, the majority of the people we're going to sit Safeway or sit next to at the ball game are non-believers. And they are watching you and I. And so what we do, how we act, what we believe is important. How we are seen is a part of how we witness. And Paul was talking to the Corinthians to remind them, hey, you believe a certain thing, please observe the fundamentals of the faith. Please be disciplined in your faith in order to win new believers, in order to represent Jesus Christ accurately, in order for you to grow in the faith and be more like Christ. That's an applicable concept to you and I. Now, Paul was talking to Corinthians specifically. They weren't doing the Lord's table correctly. And so to reflect on that, what Paul's pointing out is that this is important what we do here that you need to do this correctly. The passage uh, starts in verse 23, and Paul wants them to do this together, all of the church together. And so Paul's reminding them what he received from God directly. And you can parallel this passage with Luke chapter 22. Luke was a historian, and Luke was extremely accurate, and these things dovetail nicely. There's a nice harmony between the two. We're going to stand First Corinthians, though. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, short passage, powerful stuff, a lot going on here. The context is about doing this together as a church. The context is about the church. And remember that. Uh, Put it into the near context. Christ is talking to the disciples, the 12. This is the last time they're going to be together. They're observing the Passover meal, the Seder dinner, which which would not be three things on a little table. This would be a massive banquet. This would be a huge table. 
the last time they're going to be together, and Jesus says he earnestly desired to share this with them one more time. So it's sort of like, it's not Christ's last words on earth, but it's his last words with his closest friends. The people he's closest to on the planet, he's going to talk to them one more time. And so when Paul says, I received this from the Lord, this is a powerful message. This is something we want to stop for a second and think about. Okay, this is a big deal to Jesus. This should be a big deal to us. And Jesus is giving them a time, I want you to remember me. And he reaches on to this banquet feast. And if you've been here for a few years, we've, we've gone through what was on the table in the Seder meal. It was very specific in a Passover meal, what the Jews would have been observing. And there's all kinds of things. And yet Christ picked two things, not accidentally. He picked bread and wine. There we go. Now, there's a director's cut of this sermon that you can find online that I went through bread and wine in extreme detail. And if that's really interesting to you, come up to me afterwards. I'll, I'll be more than happy to share what I learned about bread and wine. But put it this way, bread is one of the most common things in the world. Grains, crushed, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of water, add heat. You have bread. Your results may vary. But that's what it is. Wine, crushed fruit, add a little sugar, let it ferment in a certain way, maybe filter it. You have an alcoholic beverage that is healing and will be transported anywhere in the world. Very celebratory. Also, if you try that at home, your results may vary. But that's the essence of wine. They're extremely simple and extremely common, but they have very deep meanings because in the culture, bread was a nourishment. Bread changed our world from being hunter-gatherers to where we could start making cities and specialize and everybody could have a little more free time. Bread is, brings life. It's health. It's nutrition. Wine was celebratory, and wine was also something that was able to heal because water was not to be trusted until very recently, historically speaking. Wine was safe because water wasn't. Wine could actually heal wounds. The alcohol would kill things in germs. So wine had this idea that it could cover wounds and heal and was also celebratory. And one of Christ's first miracles, he well, not one of, the first miracle he performed was transforming water into wine. So Christ picked these two elements not randomly. He picked these specifically to be used in remembering him. And that was not being missed on the ancient world. And it can be missed on us if we overlook it quickly. Because you're going to get a thimble full of grape juice in a few minutes, right? And it's easy to overlook the context, the history that that crushed grape represents that goes all the way back to the ancient world. In fact, for the first 1,600 years of Christianity, we were uniquely identified with wine selling. That's part of how the gospel went with the wine trade. And bread... We even use the phrase, break bread together. Where does that come from? It comes from this meal that we're to remember Jesus with. So, Jesus, before he does anything else, if you read that passage, what does he do? He gives thanks. Now, I don't know about you. If you knew you were about to be betrayed by one of your closest friends, and you were going to be put to death in a horrible way in the morning, well, later on the next day, would you give thanks? 
Would you pray with an attitude of gratitude in that situation? That is a remarkable thing, not to be overlooked, that in the midst of pretty awful circumstances, Jesus' first thing he does in this act is to pray and to give thanks. And then he goes on with the teaching time. That's remarkable to me. Now, the apostles, we would have been just like them. They were arguing. They were having another discussion. But Jesus put that out there, gave thanks. The second thing he does after he gave thanks is what we also want to recognize this morning, and that's there's a warning. It says, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Meaning, before we do this, we're to take a look at our own life. And expanding on that, it's pretty simple. It's make sure we don't partake in an unworthy manner. And an unworthy manner is unconfessed sin in our heart. And sometimes we don't know that we have unconfessed sin. But are you human? Are you breathing? You've got unconfessed sin. You might not know what it is, but you can still confess it. You might know what it is, in which case you darn, it's important that you confess it. That's direct scripture. Give thanks, take care of unconfessed sin, and then we observe this together. Now, this is for remembrance. Jesus said that twice. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And at Grace Point Church, we believe this is for remembrance. The purpose is a memorial. Other churches have different beliefs. And I won't go through all those. Again, you can direct you to the director's cut, and there's a longer explanation of that. But memorial meaning of communion is the most common in uh, Christian churches. Uh, Depending on where you live, it might be less common. uh, But uh, in North America, certainly, that would be the most common. And we don't say that you have to believe that this is memorial in order to be a member here, but we do say this is what we teach here. And it's a great discussion. It's a discussion that goes on for thousands and thousands of years, different meanings of this. What I would say to you is to look it up. I mean, do your own homework on that about is this memorial? Does this mean something else? Do you get grace from partaking with bread and uh, fruit juice? You have to be very consistent with your Bible interpretation. And if you're consistent with your Bible, you will arrive that this is memorial. Other people have other things that they look at as being important. That's, no, that's fine for them. Uh, but our teaching position here at Grace Point is to be consistent with our Bible and to be consistent with how we teach that this is a memorial time, to remember Christ and to be unified in our doing it. Communion is us together remembering Jesus Christ. The communion is horizontal. Uh, We remember the vertical relationship, but we have to do it this way. And the the Corinthian church, they were were into class, and there's, I'm rich and you're poor, and I'm a better Christian, and I'm going to sit at the front, and the the bad Christians sit there, and if you give a lot, you get to sit over here, and that doesn't belong in the church. And Paul was pointing that out to Corinthians. That's also in the unworthy manner. So it's about being together to do this, and that's about being together the church. This is a time, this is something that believers do. And uh, if you're a believer, then I'm talking to you. And if you're not a believer, uh, this isn't 
going to be anything. I would, if you're not a believer and we per, will observe communion together this morning, I'd ask you just to observe. But I would ask you to, to think while we're doing that. Uh, this has deep meaning as we remember what Jesus Christ did for us, that he died for my life, cover my sin, and to give me a life to come. And he did the same for you. And eternity is hard to grasp in this world, but it's real nonetheless. And if you have any doubt where you will be the moment after you die, if you don't have absolute certainty because of what Jesus Christ did, because of your belief in Christ, then I would want to talk to you afterwards. And so would just about everybody else in this room would love to talk to you and share the gospel with you. And that's a bigger deal than anything else we're going to talk about this morning. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today would be a phenomenal day for you to know him. And I would pray for you, and I would pray this morning that today could be a great day. And if you want to talk to me about that, I'll be hanging around afterwards. Um, so will just about anybody else here. Just, it, I would, everybody in this church would love to talk to you about sharing what Jesus means to us and how much different we are because of it. So, if the men would come up to serve this morning, we're going to follow what's written down in the Bible for uh, observing communion together to remember what we do here. And there's three things we're going to kind of think about and remember this morning. Uh, First part is we're going to remember Jesus Christ's body that was broken for us with the bread. We're going to remember that our sin has consequences. We're going to remember that Jesus Christ took away that penalty and covered us with his blood, which is represented by the wine and a new covenant. And we're going to do a third thing. In the process of doing that, we're going to do this whole third thing, which we'll talk about later. Before we start, we want to give thanks, and we want to have a time of introspection to confess any sin that we have in our hearts. So... Let me pray, and then I'll give, I'll kind of pause, and during that pause will be a time that you can uh, just talk to the Lord yourself. If you have any unconfessed sin, I pray that you pray that at this time. And if you can't get over that, I'd also, it would be best, according to Scripture, that you just kind of not partake this morning until you can have that clean. Let me pray. Holy Father, you are so good. You are our creator. You gave us your son. You give us your Holy Spirit. Father, each one of us is an imperfect human. We love imperfectly. We are selfish, and we commit sin, and we know that we deserve the penalty for our sin, which is death. But, Father, we know that your God, (laughs) your love is so great that you sent us your son who paid that price who took our debt and paid it and made it gone forever. So, Father, we do ask you this morning that you would hear our prayer, that you would forgive us our sins by the blood and actions of your Son. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayer. We thank you that your word is so very clear that 
that sin is gone and that when we arrive in heaven and Satan accuses us, Jesus will stand and say, nope, that's paid for. That's gone. We don't deserve it except for the love that you have for us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And our church says, amen. So, to symbolize his death, Christ took the bread, a common element. And we'll, he says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we'll pray for the bread. And I'll ask Mark to give prayer this morning for the bread.